I remember several years ago reading a book entitled Just Mercy. It's a story, some of you may have read it, if not, I recommend it to you. It's a story of a, a young attorney, Brian Stevenson, who takes on the, the case of a, a black man who's serving a death sentence for a murder that he did not commit. And this, this story uh, of that defense and others eventually leads to the founding of the Equal Justice Initiative, which has, has served well to represent many such cases of those who are falsely convicted. And it's a very, very powerful story of mercy and redemption. And since reading it, I've often found myself wondering what it would be like to be in jail, to be, to be convicted wrongly for a, and punished for a crime that you did not commit. How would I, how would you respond to suddenly having everything stripped away, to, to being cast out and confined, sometimes alone, behind bars, bearing the pain and burden, not just of, of prison and, and possibly death, but knowingly having in, suffered injustice at the hands of those in charge of justice, and not knowing if you will ever get your day in court again. I imagine if you're like me, you would spend a lot of time remembering and rehearsing the details of the case, holding on to the, to the innocence that you have, even in the event or, or, or in hopes of the event that you might get another day in court. And we've been following this story of, of this man named Job through a similar scenario through the tragic realities of deep suffering and, and loss of everything, his confusion and his questions about, about why these terrible things are happening to him and how he feels imprisoned in this, in this suffering state. We've seen the formulaic and, and patronizing counsel of his, his three friends who have turned to his accusers, whose argument boils down basically to God only punishes the wicked and rewards the righteous, and therefore it's obvious that Job's sin is responsible for God's action against him. In other words, that he is suffering what he deserves. And Job's continued rejection of their assessment and his increasing conviction and confidence that if, he, if only he, or better yet, only, only someone could stand before God, an advocate, a good attorney could come in and argue his case, surely he will be vindicated. Surely he would have redemption. And if you were here last week, we left off in chapter 27 with Job Continuing to press his case, refusing to set aside his integrity, holding fast to his, his righteousness before God and not letting go of the belief that, that a righteous and just God is truly his only hope for justice and vindication. And with this declaration, Job's, Job's friends have nothing more to say to him and they are silenced. Chapter 28, which kind of serves as a bridge between Job's last speech with his friends and, and this monologue we're going to look at serves as a kind of intermission in this courtroom-like drama. We won't go back and look at it, but you can go back and read it. And, it. and there Job is musing on this question of where can true wisdom really be found? And he rightly concludes 
that only God knows the way to it. Only God himself can declare and establish wisdom. And so Job ends chapter 28 with this statement that, that if you were here this summer when we studied Proverbs, captures the definition of true wisdom. He says, behold, he says, God revealed to him that behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. And, and the irony of this statement is that that's exactly God's assessment of Job. Twice in chapter 2, God says that Job is a man who fears the Lord, that Job turns away from evil. And, and so by God's own definition, Job is a wise and upright person, which is, again, the whole root of his dilemma. How can the all-wise, the almighty God bring such suffering upon his own servant who has feared him, has turned away from evil? If that truly is the key to wisdom and understanding, Job's thinking, why does it still feel like God has imprisoned me in darkness through all of this? Which brings us to what we have before us this morning that we might call Job's closing arguments or his, his final appeal. In a court case, when, when the, the counsel is giving a chance to give their closing arguments, they take all the evidence, they take all the testimony that has been given, they sum it all up, and they present their best case to the jury and the judge. And Job's summary defense, as it's given in the heading of the ESV translation in chapter 29, really spans these next three chapters that we're dealing with today. They not only represent Job's uh, uh, closing arguments and, and, and uh, confessing of his own innocence. But they, it also brings Job to the brink, and some would actually say crossing over the line, of laying a formal charge against God for all that he has suffered. In other words, of turning around, as I said to the kids, and turning his question of why to why, and accusing God of injustice, which sets the stage for him ultimately getting his wish to stand before God. And as Job sums up his case in these chapters, we see a progression of his thought and his feeling that not only reflects how, how we might think, how we might feel in situations of suffering, but also foreshadow the one whose case ultimately procures just mercy for those of us who live under the death sentence of sin. And what we see in these three chapters are, and we'll break it down this way, Job's longing for the way things were, Job's lament about the way things are, and Job's laying out his case for the way things ought to be. His longing for the way things were, his lament about the way things are, and his laying out the case for the way things should be. So let's walk through those chapters as Job rests his case before God. First, longing for the way things were in chapter 29. Job recalls the good old days. The days when he, he knew the blessing of God's presence, the, the provision of God's care, when his life was lived according to the, the wisdom and the ways of God. It's a, it's a wistful reflection, if you will, on when the circumstances of his life actually coincided, actually lined up with his blameless and upright character and behavior. Job is longing for those past days when we might say, life was good. Life was good. 
And he starts by remembering it first and foremost, not of, a, not of all the, the benefits and blessings he had, but as a time of intimate fellowship and relationship with God. Oh, he says, oh, that I were in the days when God watched over me. When his light guided my path and I walked according to his truth. When I knew his friendship and the blessings of his provision. Now, we all know it's true. We cannot relive the past. And at times, our our present difficult circumstances can make the the past seem actually rosier than it really was. We can look back through the lens of suffering and everything looked great. And that's often not the case either. But there can be a a, a healthy and even a healing element uh, of looking back and counting the blessings of God that we have experienced. Remembering his work in our lives. The Bible often calls us to such remembrance of who God is and and how he has worked. And and the purpose of that is is to remind us, to encourage us and fortify our faith in difficult times. But Job is not just remembering his blessings and longing for things to be the way they were. He's also recounting the evidence in his case. (laughs) That he has indeed been blameless before God. He recalls with deep longing this this sense of assurance of God's presence. This confidence in God's care for him. He recalls his fellowship and God's friendship and his experience of his abundant blessing. And all of that resulted in what one would expect in the life of one who is faithful to God. A happy, healthy successful, good life. And as we've seen and as we've said, Job, Job really did start out as the, the poster boy for the prosperity gospel. And here he's looking back and he's saying, that was actually not a bad place to be. <laughs> he gains some solace, I'm sure, in recounting the details He knew the blessings of God in his home. He was surrounded by his children. It seemed as if his steps, he says, were just just washed in butter and that everywhere he turned, oil was flowing. Those are are, uh, visible pictures of God's abundant and good provision. We're told back in chapter 1 that Job was the greatest man in the East. And here he recounts the honor and the dignity that gave him that reputation. He talks about going into the the city gate, the place where all the elders and the the prominent leaders would meet and and decide and talk and and decide cases. And we're told that he he had a privileged seat at the city gate. And these people would, would, Job would walk in and everybody would kind of back up. Let's give Job room. Let him find his seat. All the talk would hush and everybody would wait to hear what Job had to say because he was known as a a wise and and an upright, just man. He was known for delivering the poor and the fatherless who needed help, for ministering well to the dying, for bringing joy to the widow's heart. He would help lead the blind. He would guide and carry the lame. He served as a father to the needy, an advocate for the stranger, a defender against the wicked. Job is saying, Lord, not only did you you bless me abundantly, not only did you give me honor and dignity, but, but you gave me the privilege of ministering and sharing that with others in the community. Indeed, 
Job's description of himself, if you look in chapter 14, I mean, excuse me, chapter 29, verse 14, it kind of takes us back a bit. Look what he says there in verse 14. He says, I'm in chapter 26. I don't want to be there. He says, I put on righteousness and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. Using the, 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 the clothing metaphor, Job is referencing the, the inner spiritual condition that motivated his outward visible lifestyle. He was clothed in righteousness and justice. He stood like a, a king among his peers, exercising what was good and right. And it was characterized by his very nature. And as a result, in verse 15, 18, Job says he believed that he would finish out his life in such a blessed state. He says, oh, that I would die. I thought I would die in my nest, all comfortable and, and, and taken care of. And his days would be multiplied like sand. He says, my glory would be fresh with me and my bow ever in my hand. When we feel like life is really good, when we, when we feel the light of God's face is shining brightly upon us, it is easy to make a connection between that that assumes it's going to always be like that. That assumes the way things are today will be like that for the rest of our life. And while Job is understandably reminiscing on and missing the good old days, he is also starting to inch dangerously closer to the very thing that Satan and his Job's friends accuse him of, which is, which is putting his, his trust, putting his, his, uh, his hope in God only when things are good. <laughs> of trusting God for his blessings and not for who he is. And if we feel that we have or perhaps deserve God's blessing because of our faith and obedience then when those blessings are disrupted, when they are displaced by suffering or hardship, we can be left truly confused and angry like Job. And so that's, that's what we see going on here. His, his questions are becoming more and more uh, a sense of, I, I don't deserve this, I don't deserve this. And we'll see that he's right in many ways, but you can tell what's going on in his heart. And so when we find ourselves going through trials and tribulations or when we walk with someone through such times, it is, it is expected. <laughs> uh, it is expected that we will look with longing to those times when life was better. None of us will go through suffering without saying, gosh, I remember what it was like before this. <laughs> and it was a lot better. We'll always look to the, to the sunny days when the storm begins to rage in our lives. And we may remember when a failed marriage was filled with love and romance. Look back to when a lost or a, a wayward child used to run into our hugs and climb up on our laps. When a, when a now broken or embittered relationship actually brought joyful laughter and, and friendly fellowship. When an ailing body used to, to run and to work with, with strength and vigor. When a, a struggling career was at times filled with success and promise. We should expect to do that. And doing so can bring with it a, a real sense of solace and perhaps a, a, a greater hope that, we, that God is in this and we, might, we will experience that again. But it can also intensify the pain of the present circumstances. 
And it can cause us to begin to question God's goodness. And that's a little bit of what we see happening in Job. And we have to remember that God does not guarantee, nor does our hope lie in a pain-free life in this earth, on this earth. And so Job looks back on the days when his righteousness indeed was, was experienced in his life by intimacy with God, by the blessing of, uh, of a good name and honor and respect among men and a, and a life lived with compassion and care for others. And he rightly credits those things to God's presence, to his providential care and goodness. And it serves as a basis for his contention that he really has done nothing to deserve this suffering. And so this, this longing for the way things were leads to the next phase of his argument. And that is a lament for the way things are. And we see that in chapter 30. Job now turns to the fact that, that his life as it was has now been transformed from, from blessing to curse. He still is making this case that this, this change is not due to anything in himself, nothing that he has done. And so just as he, is, he recalled the way things were, here he lays out again in detail the way he sees things as they currently are. And having spoken about he used to be the, how he used to be the most revered and respected of men in the city, he opens chapter 30 with this. But now they laugh at me. Now they laugh at me. The one who was revered is now mocked. And not just, Job says, by, by honorable men. It's not just by those city leaders that he sat in the gate with. He says, now, these are, these are the children of men who I would not even have entrusted the care of my dogs to, <laughs> is what he says. he says. He says, these men who have been driven out of society like thieves, who live in foolish anonymity. These are the, these are the truly wicked ones, the truly ones that deserve the, the, the punishment of God. And Job is saying, even those now rejoice in my calamity. They now look down on me when they see me. They spit at me when they pass me. Terrors, he says in verse 15 of chapter 30, are turned on me. My honor is pursued by the wind and my prosperity has passed away like a cloud. Job again laments the pain and the affliction that he is enduring. And it's as if, as he says in verse 18, God has taken the righteous garment with which he has been closed and, and with great force has stripped it off of him and drug him to the ground by his neck to choke him. He in effect says, I've been mugged by God. And then he turns his cry to God whom he believes has cast him into the mire, who has turned cruel to him and is now persecuting him, he says, tossing him to and fro on the ways of destruction. And now Job points his finger. And he points it at God. Knowing what he knows about and has experienced personally of God's sovereignty, of his righteousness, of his blessings, Job's only explanation for the terror and the suffering he's experiencing is that the God who was the, who, who, who was the blessing of his life that he knew 
is also the same God in the, the cursed life that he is experiencing now behind that. And so for the first time in all this debate and struggle, Job comes to the point of openly accusing God of cruelty and of refusing to do the very thing that Job himself dedicated his life to doing, answering the cry of one who is in need. Job says, Didn't I weep for him whose day was hard? Wasn't my soul grieved for those who are suffering, the needy? And yet when I hope for good, evil comes. And when I waited for the light, only darkness came. Job says, in essence, even, even I, as a caring human being, would not treat someone, God, in the same way you're treating me. And so this, this optimism he may have, have gained in remembering the past now begins to turn to utter pessimism in the face of his present. Job has come from, from being a man whose every step was paved in, in, in cream and, and oil flowing to one whose only song is a funeral dirge. Mourning and weeping. How easy it is and how we know that experience in suffering. This up and down of emotions. This sense of God's blessing and his curse. This recognition of, of his sovereignty. But this anger at his, what seems to be his punishment. And so Job laments the shame that his life has become. And while it leads him to question and even accuse God... Hear this, it leads him to God. It leads him to God. Again, we know what Job does not. We've, we've read chapter 2. We know that, it's, that it really is Satan's hand that is bringing this affliction upon Job, yet at God's permission, at his allowance. Job perhaps wrongly lays blame for his suffering at God's feet, but he still rightly acknowledges that if God is God, and for God to be God, he is ultimately in control of all that is happening in his life. Just as we've been talking about God's providence. He is sovereign over, over governing and, and, and sustaining everything that happens in his creature's life. Even over the, the sin and evil of this world. Even though he is not responsible or the author of it. Job knows this and, and thus it is only from God that he can ultimately gain understanding in, in the end vindication. So Job turns in this final appeal from, from the longing he has for the way things were and the, and the lamenting and sorrow he has for the way things are to now laying out in his mind how things should be. And that's what we see in chapter 31. Having affirmed that wisdom is found in the fear of the Lord, having contrasted the blessed life of his past and the present cursed state in which he lived, Job now, in a sense... He takes the stand in his own defense, something that defense lawyers often don't recommend. But Job says, no, I am so confident of my case. I'm going to take the stand. And he begins to set forth a list of charges and, and calls down judgment on himself if any of them can be proven true. Job uses covenantal language here that was, that was familiar in ancient, ancient times to set forth a case 
And he opens with a proclamation of having covenanted with his eyes that he would not gaze upon a virgin. And his rationale is that I know God sees everything. And he does punish the wicked. And so I've covenanted with my eyes with what I see, knowing that God sees now, Job is not just starting out with, his, with one particular sin, and he's not just, just starting out with a commitment to resist giving in to, to lust. He's starting with an example of how walking in righteousness is not just a matter of our behavior, but it's a, it's a matter of the heart. It's a matter of what goes on inside. To look at a woman, even admire beauty, is not in, in and of itself wrong. But it's when the eyes gaze, and that term has this sense of, of gazing with a desire for. It's when those eyes gaze and, and, and cause uh, the matter of lusting in the heart that such sin comes forth. And such sin may be hidden from God, but Job knows it cannot be I mean, hidden from man, but Job knows it cannot be hidden from God. And thus... As we heard Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, as he's recounting what it means to, to live a life committed to God, to live a blameless and upright life, he says, truly, even now, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. He takes the law and he emphasizes the true intent and the, and the heart uh, attitude which says that, that, that God calls us to in righteousness. To look lustfully is to commit adultery. <laughs> to, to insult a, a neighbor harshly is to commit murder. And here Job starts out saying, I made a covenant, I made a commitment with my body to guard against sinning in my heart. Here we see Job proactively taking the radical measures that Jesus spoke of to guard our hearts from sinning. Pulling out your eye, cutting off your hand, whatever it is. Job said, I have made a covenant not to do those things because I don't want to sin, not just outwardly, but in my heart. And then Job goes on to mount his case. And he gives this, and his formula, as we read through these, these verses, is in essence to say, if I have committed such and such a sin, and he gets into detail about what those sins are, explains them very, very uh, succinctly. If I am found guilty of any of these, then I myself will call down the judgment of God upon myself for that sin. And he gives through a comprehensive list. We're not going to walk through all of them, but I'll just summarize them here. He says, if I have dealt falsely or deceitfully with others, then let me be weighed in the balance of God's righteousness. And let others get anything that I may have gained in that. If I've committed adultery with another woman, Job says, let the same thing happen to my wife and let the fire of God come upon me and engulf me. If I have dealt unjustly with my servants, who, by the way, Job notes, are made in God's image, just as I am. You know, we live in this culture now with, uh, with critical theory that says we're parts of classes of oppressors and parts of the oppressed and, and there's differences. And Job says, no, 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 we're all created in God's image. <laughs> I'm no better than my servant. My servant is no worse than me. And therefore, I deal justly with them because they are made by God just like me, not because they're some member of a, of a different class. 
He says, if I have dealt unjustly with my servants who are made in God's image just as I am, if I've taken advantage of the poor or oppressed the needy, if I've withheld goods from, from the, the, the needy and have raised my hand against the widow or the orphan, he says, let my arm be torn off. <laughs> For I know I will stand in terror before the Lord. If I've gloried in my wealth, he says, or in my position, in society, if I, have, if I have in pride kissed my own hand, then let me be condemned as having worshipped at the altar of idols, he says. I've treated God falsely. If I have rejoiced in others' failures or have exulted in evil, if I have failed to show hospitality to strangers, if I have hypocritically hidden my sin from others and have feared the opinions of others, Job's just, he's just listing. Yeah, this charge against me, this charge against me. If that's true, then, then, I, then do all that you're doing to me. And then he ends at the end of the chapter. He says, if my very land cries out against me for treating it poorly, Job says, let it only yield thorns and thistles. Does that sound familiar? God's curse upon the first sin. The blood of Abel cries out for justice. And God's curse upon the first sin is that, that man would toil and labor. And the land would only produce thorns and thistles. Job's saying, let that fall upon me if these things are true. And so in the midst of this final plea of innocent, Job, who up to this point has has seemed somewhat conflicted about his desire to appear before God, has been somewhat concerned about what that might mean when he actually does appear before God, even wishing that there would be a, an advocate, a, an intercessor that could stand and intercede for him. Now Job becomes so convinced of his case that he cries out, that I had one to hear me. Here, I'm signing my own confession let the Almighty answer. Job now issues the challenge to God. Here's my statement. Here's my confession of innocence. Signed, sealed, delivered, handed over. Give me the indictment that you have against me. That's what he's saying to God. Tell me what I have done wrong. Write it out. He says, write it out. I'll put it on my, my head. I'll walk around into the courtroom like a prince to defend my righteousness. After all the dialogue and debate, after all the longing and lament, after reviewing and presenting his case as thoroughly as, his can, as he can, Job lays down the gauntlet. And then the defense rests his case. And he calls on the prosecutor to answer his claims. It's easy to come to these words, and if you're like me as I was reading this, and like many commentators who read this, it's easy to come at this point and begin to sympathize with Job's friends. <laughs> okay, Job, you've taken it a little bit too far. <laughs> Your righteousness has crossed the line into self-righteousness. We know that all have sinned and fall short, and now, Job, you protesteth too much. <laughs> and perhaps he does, like we do. 
at times. There is a danger in suffering that we can go from crying out to God for mercy to putting God on trial for injustice. That's a danger. But even though Job doesn't yet have his answer, it behooves us to remember that God himself, when he does give Job, when he does come and appear before Job, will say of Job, he is correct. He has not said anything wrong. And he will say of Job's friends, you are wrong. And as we think about Job's, Job's appeal, as his final appeal before the Lord, perhaps we should think of his claim not as one of sinless perfection, not of standing before God and saying, I have never done anything wrong. We already know from the rest of his testimony that, that he, he, he sees that there have been sin in his life. But think of it as a, as a sinner who is walking with God in the manner that has been revealed by God. A sinner restored through the, the offering of sacrifices, which we saw Job making for his, his children, and, and, and we assume he probably made for himself as well. And one whose, whose great suffering seems so out of proportion to the way that he has lived his life. Job's closing arguments actually encourage us to know the fellowship and the righteousness of God that has been restored to us by the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ and to cling to that righteousness, to plead it as our only hope and defense, to come to God and call on him to make things right through his faithful promises that he has given to us and have been fulfilled in Christ Jesus. And indeed, in Job's closing arguments, we have a foreshadowing of the one whom God would send to take up our case for us. His son, Jesus, who knew perfect fellowship and favor with God, who lived the good life and the glory of God more than we could ever imagine who had all the blessings of heaven at his disposal, who was indeed perfectly clothed in righteousness and justice, being anointed by God the Father to, to restore sight to the blind, to proclaim good news to the captive, to make the lame walk, to set at liberty those who are in bondage and to rule over God's kingdom in righteousness. But remember what Isaiah the prophet tells us. In chapter 52, verse 13, God's servant who would act wisely and be high and lifted up and exalted would be despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows acquainted with grief, like one from whom men hide their face, spit on when they go past, mock because of his claims. And we're told there in Isaiah, it was the Lord's will to crush him, to make his soul an offering for guilt. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. On him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. Jesus bore the curse for Job's sins, for our sins, on himself, 
that we might truly be clothed in the righteousness and the justice of God, just as Job believed he was at that point. Jesus, excuse me, if anyone could truly stand before God and protest his innocence, that he did not deserve the suffering he would endure, it is Jesus Christ. And yet we're told, again in Isaiah, he was led like a lamb to the slaughter and like a sheep before his shearers. He was silent. He didn't open his mouth. He didn't lay out all the reasons why what was happening would be unjust, and they were. Yes, he did ask God why. Yes, he did ask God to remove that suffering from him if it be his will as a man like you and me and Job. But ultimately, he willingly endured what we deserve and voluntarily entered in to the punishment for our sin. And so, as Job rests his case, we'll see he will get his day in court. <laughs> he will see that after enduring the, the testimony of one more witness, which we'll look at next week, that he will stand before God. But it will not be God giving Job an answer and being set straight by Job. It will be Job who is called to answer. And he will stand before God in humble silence. And friends, in the midst of suffering, when, the going, when, when we're going through difficulty, when we feel and, and, and experience God's hand heavy upon us, for no good reason perhaps, nothing that we can understand, we may long for the way things were in the old days. And we may truly and openly lament the way things are in the sufferings of this present world. But brothers and sisters, let us remember that God's just indictment against us, that the, the vast list of sins that he could come up and lay at our feet have been taken up and have been borne by Jesus Christ. And our merciful pardon is signed and sealed not by our own claims of innocence, not by our works of righteousness that we have done, but they are signed and sealed by the blood of Jesus who stands in our place and, and bore on the tree of the cross the curse for us. And because of that, and because of his resurrection and his being a living redeemer with us now, we can enter boldly into the throne room of God. We can come boldly into his presence, confessing our sin, crying out for his mercy, holding forth our need, and know that God will have just mercy on those of us who are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. The sufferings of this present world cannot compare with the glory that awaits us in Jesus. Job couldn't see that. He believed it. He couldn't understand it. But we have seen it. And we experience it. And as we now bear the righteousness of Christ by faith, brothers and sisters, let us hold fast to that. And let us covenant to live that out in righteousness in our lives that God has now equipped us with. 
To now live for our king and love like Jesus loved us. And now seek to to guide people to him as the only hope. And let us strive to know, as Paul would say, Christ and the power of his resurrection as we enter into the fellowship of his suffering. To be holy as he is holy and to find our worth, as we're going to sing right now, not in what we own or who we are or what we do, but to rejoice in our Redeemer who lives. Let's pray together. Lord, as we read this account, there's so much in here that I think we can identify with in Job's life. We can, he gives voice to the feelings we experience, the circumstances that we battle with. And yet, Lord, it, it's still is hard to grasp that you who are a sovereign and righteous and just God who, whose providence rules and governs and sustains all things in creation, that still we, we battle suffering. We still face hurt and sin and death. And yet you have redeemed us. And your justice and your mercy meet perfectly at the cross of Jesus Christ. And there we receive both. Father, if there's anyone here today that doesn't know that for themselves, whose faith and hope is not in a living Redeemer, Lord, would you open their eyes and their hearts to believe And for those of us who do believe, Lord, may we cling to that in our times of suffering. May we seek to to live out that gospel truth in our engagements with this world and with one another. And may we long, not for the way things were, Lord, we would never go back. But may we long for the way things we know they will be when you come and restore all things to yourself. And make all things right. We give you thanks and praise in Christ's name. Amen.